a listener production. Hi, and welcome back to Broadsheet Melbourne Around Town. I'm Broadsheet's editorial director, Katja Vaktel, and the host of this guide to Melbourne. The city has an incredible new gallery to visit, and we'll get to that in a moment. First, we're going on a food tour. We love our Japanese cafes in Melbourne, and this year we've seen the arrival of a few new spots for us to try. Audrey Payne, our Broadsheet Melbourne food and drink editor, is here to walk us through three of them. Welcome, Audrey. Thanks. Talk us through Ima Asayuru, which is one of those places that's actually got a long-running history and that Melbournians love. I have good feelings. <laughs> um, I actually went there this past weekend. So Ima Asayuru is from the same team who used to have Ima Project Cafe in Carlton. Yep. They've moved to Brunswick, uh, Nightingale Village. It is such a cool space. Like I almost walked past it, but basically they have all these... Eve Klein blue detailing throughout the restaurant and all these beautiful like paper lampshades and it's just a really pretty space. Not overly designed or anything, just really, really beautiful. I didn't want to leave. And then they have Japanese dishes on the menu. So they have their Japanese breakfast set, which if people went to Ima Project Cafe in Carlton, that was kind of their big dish that they were known for. And when people heard that they were closing... Mm. There was outrage outrage and despair. And one of the reasons was because people love that dish. Yes. Um, and for people who haven't had it, it comes kind of served on a platter. There's a few different components. There's a piece of grilled fish. There's some rice, some miso soup, like real classic, real good. Um, I had the Japanese rice porridge. So it was kind of like almost a congee, but a bit more broth than you would typically get. And um, a perfect little soy sauce egg with it that just kind of like ran everywhere. They also have really good hojicha lattes, matcha lattes, just a great Did you get one of those? Time. I got a hojicha latte. Well, can you tell me about that flavor and what that is? Yeah. So hojicha is that kind of burnt rice tea that you get sometimes in um, Asian grocers. So it typically looks a bit darker. It's almost like a brown color and it's this really toasty, nutty flavor. Okay. They have a latte version. So it's almost like a matcha latte, but just a different type of tea. Okay. Nutty. It's quite savoury. Yes, very savoury. Like as sweet as a matcha or a chai? No, no. no. More like toasty, roasty, beautiful flavours. I mean, Audrey, yeah. this is, we're heading into summer, but this yeah. sounds like it would have been well, you a... Well, you can also get it iced. Yeah. So there oh, you go. right. Okay, mm-hmm. good. I should say like just a couple shop fronts down, they have a little cafe space. So you can Same get, owners. Same owners. They have a little grocery section, so all these beautiful... Japanese products that can be kind of hard to find and pastries, which I love. Um, they had a hojicha cookie, so really great. Like you can go get brunch and then if you're still needing a bit of a buzz or something, you can go get and if you need, coffees to take away. And if you feel like you might have some withdrawals later, you can get the stuff from the grocery store and make sure you've got something at home for later. Exactly. There's a whole range of dishes as well. You can get their chirashi, which is the bowl of seasoned sushi rice topped with beautiful kingfish. There's also a pork stew on the menu made with soy milk that I thought sounded really delicious and also a dry noodle dish with minced pork vegetables and an onsen egg, which is just one of those things that I feel like I crave at least once a week. I think any dish that that gives you the option to add an onsen egg, you should definitely go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk next about Chiaki, Mm -hmm. which has this power trio behind it, including someone who you just can't stop raving about. Tell us about 
about this spot? Yeah, so Chiaki is a new cafe restaurant that is the child, I guess, of Mozao, Alicia Feng, and Kentaro Okada. So Mo and Alicia, I think they're like the secret Melbourne food power couple. Mo has Gaia on Gertrude Street and Alicia has Kaler, which is the coffee shop just attached to it. And they've teamed up with Kentaro, who is behind Leonie Upstairs, 279, like serious Japanese cafe chops behind him to open Chiaki. And it's still hard to get into. Like people line up, it's just near the broadsheet office and I walk past sometimes, it's kind of near Smith and Delhi. And there's always a line outside. You have to put your name on a list. Like it's a tough seat to get, but if you can get it, it's worth it. What are we ordering when we, we go to Chiaki? So if you're going at lunch, ochizuke is what they're known for. So that's a Japanese dish that is a bowl of rice. And then it's traditionally made with a tea broth, so green tea. But here they use a dashi based broth. And basically you get this bowl of rice, you get a protein on top, and then you pour the ochizuke over it. And they also have a homemade furikake that you mix in. And it's just... And it's just you seem very excited. Like you can't even. Word, no, I'm like I shouldn't use the word perfect, but it's kind of perfect. Like it's so comforting and tasty, and and again, you can choose those an onsen egg. You can choose your toppings, and you can choose. We can choose the protein. The, okay, um, furikake is the same. Right. Okay. Yeah. Other things as well that I had my eye on. Mm-hmm. I haven't been yet which is sad, but um, they have these guest coffee roasters from China and Japan, which mm-hmm. is such an, I think that's awesome and makes this a different a different cafe to others. Yes, and they also have a lot of specialty teas. So Alicia, who is overseeing the coffee program there, um, used to work at St. Ali ages ago and has started Claire and knows her coffee like no one I've really come across in Melbourne. And that's a bold claim, I know, but she is really... She knows what she's talking about. And you get these roasts from China and Japan that you don't really find elsewhere. So it's mm. a really special place. It's almost worth seeking out. I mean, obviously the dish you've described sounds very delicious, mm-hmm. but if you really love coffee and tea, and as you said, Melbourne has got its fair share of unbelievable spots to try it, but this feels like you might actually get to try something you haven't had before. Yes, I think that's definitely fair to say. And um, they've started doing dinners at night too. I think Mo, the chef, can't really help himself. If he has the opportunity to create more dishes, he will. So they have a pretty exciting dinner offering as well, which is like leaning a little bit more fine dining. That's Mo's background, but still casual enough. You can go with a group of friends and not feel like it's stuffy or anything like that. Wine bar vibes. Yeah, wine bar vibes. Okay. Now, our third and final spot is Ilza Izakaya and Snack Bar. This is not the first of these spots. This is the fourth, I believe, the fourth iteration. And there is some serious pedigree with these owners. Yes. So Erin and Han are the owners. Han used to work the floor at Nobu Melbourne and Erin was in the kitchen. So that's actually how they met. They're a couple. They started Ilza together because they wanted to do something that was more accessible for people than the fine dining places that they'd worked in, that being Nobu. So their hospitality background is Japanese, but they themselves are Korean. So Ilza's kind of cool because they mix those two cuisines in a really interesting way. Mm. So there's a Korean-American dish called cream corn, which is basically cheesy corn dish. 
And Erin's kind of created her own version of it where she gets that and then she batters it and fries it. How good does that sound? Yeah. <laughs> During the conversation I had with them, I kind of called her the queen of deep frying and I think she quite liked that. <laughs> um, they also have a dish that people who've been to their other venues will know. It's a hamburger patty that is filled with cheese and deep fried. And then Han is overseeing the drinks there as well. So using some ferments, making some house-made cocktails. Where is this fourth spot, by the uh, way? It's in the city. So okay. it's um, kind of near Flinders Street Station, pretty hidden down a lane, a hidden gem, if you will. But it's only 25 seats. It's really tiny. Um, yeah, great. Is it a blink and you'll miss it spot or you if, you're, if you know... If you've got the address, it's easy to find. Yeah, if you have the address, it's pretty colourful. It's like red and bright. There's these cute little cartoon illustrations of Erin and Han. So it's hard to miss, but you have to go down a lane. You have to know where it is. Well, I want to go on a crawl to yeah. all these different places, and I think that they are all absolutely doable in one day as well. If you are looking for more information of, on any of these venues, Audrey uh, published individual stories on all these venues on the Broadsheet Melbourne site, but there's also a great story about three new Japanese cafes to try. Are they all open for dinner as well? Was that they one are, of the elements? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're all open for dinner. So you can, as you said, do a big crawl. Okay. So if you don't make it during the day, just head on over at night. Mm-hmm. Maybe do both. Try them both. Try the day, try the night version. While I've got you, Audrey, I wanted to ask you, what is something you've eaten in Melbourne recently that you can't stop thinking about? What dishes on your mind right now? I hate to be the cake person again, but I went out for dinner with a few friends and one of them brought a cake because it was a birthday and it was this unreal mango pomelo naked layer cake. What's a naked layer cake? It's like the Christina Tosi milk bar style cake. So it doesn't have a bunch of icing on the outside. Okay, so you can see see the layers. layers. That makes sense, yeah. From Azuo in the city and it was just, I don't usually like creamy desserts, but it wasn't so heavy with the cream that it was overpowering. And it was just, I think, a perfect cake. It also had those, if anyone's been to Yochi and had those kind of like popping lychee balls, um, it also had those on it and just a incredible cake. I think everyone should go. We can get it. It's not something that you need to order online. You can no, go no, and find it. No, no, you can yeah. just walk in and buy it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So you don't have to think about it. You can impulse purchase that cake. Like, right. Yeah. And anything in the savory vicinity? I don't usually like anchovies, but I went to Sleepy's in North Carlton. It's this great wine bar. Um, Steve Chan is the chef there and he's doing really cool Asian-Australian wine bar food. So it's kind of what you would expect to find at a wine bar, but with a usually Chinese twist. And he had anchovy toast, but it wasn't on toast. It was on a yutao, which is a Chinese donut. And it was so good. Um... Yeah, that's my big savoury win and discovery. Okay, sleepies, here we mm-hmm. come. Well, Audrey, we'll see you again soon. Watermara is a new ever-changing exhibition space dedicated to displaying masterpieces and new works from the NGV's First Nations art and design collection. Miles Russell Cook, who's a senior curator for Australian and First Nations art at the NGV, joins us today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. What does Watermara mean? Uh, So Watermara is the name that was given to this new permanent exhibition space by Auntie Gail Smith from the Wurundjeri Tribal Council. And in Woiwurrung language, uh, Watermara means many mobs or many people. And that's very much the um, principle that's gone into kind of imagining this space. 
What led to the creation of the new space? I believe it was part of a major rehang as well that occurred at the gallery. Yeah. First People's Art at NGV has had a number of different homes over the years. Uh, When we opened at Fed Square, it was on the ground floor and then it moved up to level three and it's been displayed in temporary exhibitions for kind of over a decade. This year we had an exhibition called Melbourne Now, which Mm -hmm. is an every 10-year exhibition and part of that was a kind of full gallery-wide takeover of NGV Australia. And in doing that, it really gave us an opportunity to think, well, what do we want to do when Melbourne now comes down? Mm. Uh, we're not just going to put back the collection as it was. We want to rethink kind of quite radically what the experience is. And so putting First People's Art on the ground floor was a really important part of that. Having a named space, working with mm. a language custodian, gives it a sense of permanence as well. And it coincided with a kind of a total rehang of our level two permanent collection galleries as well, which in the past used to kind of um, begin with the arrival of the British and then kind of unfold a story of Australian art that was very much the story of the emergence of European art in Australia. Mm. We've decided to kind of flip that now. So it's um, really looking at what we know of as Australian art as being a chapter within a 65,000-year history that, Mm. of course, starts with First Peoples. Going to Watamara, you've got masterpieces Mm. by elder statesmen and women of First Nations art, but then you've also got emerging works, which is really special because you get to see the full landscape and and diversity Mm. that exists and is inherent to this work. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think one of the things that this gallery space will do will say, what you think of as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art, that mm. is full of different practices and media. That's been a huge motivator for curating, particularly the inaugural hang. You know, there's a tendency for people to think that Indigenous art looks a certain way, you know, mm. it's somewhat pejorative term, but people always are asking about dot paintings, dot paintings, works on bark. And this show very much represents the breadth and diversity. We have video, neon, installation, photography, you know, there's amazing conceptual maps from the, the Western desert that show what maybe is um, more what, like people would expect to see at a First Peoples Gallery, but we also have incredible new media pieces as well and a real focus on design and just trying to diversify people's understanding of what First Peoples art can be. This year we announced Auntie Joy Murphy-Wanden as our elder in residence and we appointed a strategic council of First Nations um, kind of artists, designers, creatives, and they've given advice on a number of different aspects of our programming. And this is this is new for us. When I started at NGV, I was the only Aboriginal curator working in the department. Mm. We now have four Aboriginal curators working in the team. We've got a strategic council, an elder in residence. We're working with language custodians. And a big part that came out of that consultation was the importance that this show represents First People as contemporary and not at odds with modernity. Mm. Because there's often a kind of uh, misnomer that Aboriginal people who are living in cities or who are using new media in their work are somehow inauthentic in their Aboriginality. And so we really wanted to push that and challenge that and show that first, you know, Indigenous art is art made by Indigenous people Mm. and it's as diverse as we are. So the 
Some of the masterpieces in the inaugural hang, can you just mention a couple of them? That yeah, of when course. people are walking through, they should really look out for because they're so special. I feel like most of the things are masterpieces. So I might be the wrong person to ask because I love everything in the show. Certainly some of the really familiar icons of the collection. Mm. We have our spectacular collaborative painting from Marta Milley. We have a beautiful collaborative conceptual map from Kintor that's presented flat on a plinth, a kind of horizonless depiction of country. There's a very important new work by Amrita Heppi, which is a video work. This sounds amazing, this piece. It's it's really powerful. So it's based on a NASA-backed experiment from the 70s in which um, the kind of central animal at the heart of this experiment was a dolphin named Peter. And the experiment was designed to try and see if humans could communicate across species mm. with, with this dolphin. And he was subjected to a whole range of different experiments, um, intelligence tests, and Amrita kind of performs the tests and narrates this letter to him. And it's a really weird and a really powerful story. It um, actually concludes with Peter being the only animal known to have committed suicide following the kind of... Um, years in isolation and with experiments and she really challenges people to ask who decides who is intelligent and what we do when we don't understand someone or we don't speak the same language as someone that says so much more about us Mm. than it does about them it's incredibly incredibly moving it goes for about 15 minutes and it's presented at an absolute cinematic scale so it's a new work but I would call that a masterpiece for sure And some of the works as well align with kind of watershed moments as well in First Nations Mm. art history. Well, I mean, that's certainly present through the permanent collection as well as in Watermara. We do have a gallery that is focused on, uh, in 1971 and 1972, there was a um, senior group of artists who went on to found Papanya Tula Arts, working for the first time on scraps of composition board to paint uh, designs that had previously been ephemeral, uh, painted on the body or on sand. They rendered Mm. them permanent and really ushered in a kind of a totally new um, art movement of contemporary Aboriginal When was it? In what era was this? This is 1971 and 1972 was that kind of first moment of taking ephemeral designs and making them permanent. But the radical, it was radical. The legacy of that of, of that moment is massive because, mm. and we explore that through a number of paintings from the central and the western desert. Beautiful conceptual maps that look at a kind of unique way of being in and of and from a place. You know, it's not like when you go through the colonial galleries, horizon line after horizon line. Mm. There's no horizon lines in this depiction of country. It's from the perspective of of a bird, but it's also from the perspective of a spirit and a soul, and Mm. it's a completely unique way of seeing country. So, you know, we explore moments like that. There's a great moment that looks at kind of the innovation coming out of women bark painters from northeast Arnhem Land in a community called Yerkala. The Kimberley, uh, a really well-known art art making um, part of the country, is explored through a number of works. So we kind of look in depth. How often are these galleries going to be rehung? In the past, we used to present First People's Art, uh, for at least for the last few years, as exhibitions. And Mm. so the reality of an exhibition is that you open it, you um, have a season, and then you close, deinstall, and then you install a new exhibition. Mm. 
And that meant that there was usually a month or possibly more every year where there was really no first people's art on display mm. at NGV. Um, that's something I want to avoid. If we were to take down a Tom Roberts painting from our, you know, um, Australian art galleries, we wouldn't close the, the galleries. We would no. take that down and we would put another work up. And we often, you know, you can do complete rehangs of spaces, but it's much more about giving that sense of permanence. Part of also, I guess, your role and the teens is acquiring works. I just keep thinking about the fact that, you know, there will probably be a lot of really important work that comes out of this period, the last mm. year, the voice referendum. Uh, how soon do you think, like how quickly are you guys making acquisitions and is that something that's happening all the time or it's annual or I just keep thinking to myself it'll be really interesting to see what comes out of this period. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're constantly acquiring. So mm. um, every year we acquire, you know, uh, I would say around 100 works into our first wow. people's collection, but we're acquiring across all collection areas. This is a is a profound moment for community. Um, art, good art always comes out of profound moments like like this one. Um, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure a lot of artists will be responding to the current um, experiences, but also I think a lot of artists are probably pretty exhausted of it as well. Yeah. You know, artists, I think all Indigenous art is inherently political because it's kind of inherently political to be an Indigenous person in 2023. Mm. Whether you're painting your ancestral lands, which you've been dispossessed from mm. or whether you're, you know, an artist like Richard Bell and you're actively painting a, you know, political work with a slogan, e e either way, it's kind of, it's a, yeah. it's an act of politics. So. And, and a documentation yeah. of history. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'm really excited about this. I think we're so lucky to have this mm. gallery space, as you said, non-exhibition and yeah. ongoing space. Wurramara is on the ground floor of the Ian e. Potter Centre at the NGV Australia in Fed Square. And it's open every day? It is. Open every day. Thanks so much for joining us, Miles. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell your friends and leave us a review. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening now. You can find new episodes in your feed every Monday, Wednesday and Friday morning. Listener.